Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My good friend, Dr. Kristen Luprecht, professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk, Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, and uh, the author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford University Press. And Professor Luprecht is with us. Christian, thank you very much for stepping into the breach. And as you look at what's happening in, in Ukraine now, and particularly... Um, the Mariupol area, which has been making headlines since almost the very beginning of this Russian invasion. And you listen to what Putin is saying and uh, what is being said in return from Ukraine. How, how do you how do you boil this down? How do you how do you uh, what, what's your analysis of this? So Mariupol has really been a success for Ukraine, even if in the end they're unable to hold the city insofar as it has pinned down about 10,000 Russian troops and, of course, a significant amount of uh, artillery and uh, other Russian assets that Russia then has not been able to redeploy to other efforts, in particular uh, Putin's now more limited ambitions in eastern Ukraine. And so in that sense alone, it's, uh, it, it's, it's been a considerable success. The Russians now seem to be losing patience. Uh, yesterday, apparently, they called in uh, Tupolev 22M uh, strategic bombing capability. Um, and so it looks one way or another, they're uh, going to try to put an end to the last resistance, that pockets of resistance that exist within Mariupol. But it shows, I mean, the other reason why I think Mariupol gives us hope that even if in the end the defenders cannot hold out in Mariupol, uh, many of the population centers the Russians would be facing in eastern Ukraine are somewhat similar in the sense that it shows the Russians have great difficulty taking urban centers and have great difficulty with urban warfare. And so if it takes them weeks to take Mariupol, uh, it suggests that even the more limited ambitions that the Russians now have in eastern Ukraine, um, uh, they may very well not succeed and that this might be more of a toss up and more of an even match between the Ukrainians and the Russians uh, than the new surge of uh, Russian um, uh, assets and soldiers in eastern Ukraine would suggest. Is there an argument to be made, and this hasn't been talked about for a couple of weeks, but it certainly was the topic of international discussion for quite some time, and that is the creation of a NATO-enforced no-fly zone. Uh, General Hillier uh, very strongly believes that that should happen. He told us that two weeks ago on this program. And the former Supreme Commander of NATO, General Philip Breedlove, uh, United States Air Force, also believes there should be a no-fly zone. At the very least, he believes there should be a humanitarian no-fly zone over western Ukraine. So if the Russians were to bring their military aircraft into the area, into the western area of Ukraine, where there are refugee columns get, trying to get out, in that case, then they get attacked by NATO planes, and they know it's there, and they've been told it's there, and uh, and then, you know... What will happen will happen. Is that a, is that a sustainable argument? 
So it's a difficult situation for NATO because Putin has been trying to reframe this conflict as a conflict between Russia and the West, Russia and the United States, Russia and NATO. So the more NATO gears up, the more that feeds and bolsters the narrative to his domestic and Russian audience um, in terms of that this is really about this broader conflagration um, uh, with Russia and the West. And NATO has been very circumspect about not trying to feed that. I think NATO is also keeping this no-fly zone as a bit of a NATO has to be able to continue to escalate because Putin still continues the escalation ladder. He could resort to uh, non-conventional weapons, chemical weapons, possibly tactical nuclear weapons, who knows? And so NATO has to have an ability to uh, to escalate on its end. And so I think the no-fly zone would be a significant escalation on NATO's side that would require a very strong justification that Putin now poses not just an immediate and existential threat to Ukraine, but to the broader um, uh, to the broader NATO alliance and to the international order. And the use of chemical weapons, let alone nuclear weapons, um, would likely constitute that sort of rationale. So I think NATO is trying to make sure it still has some ability in its back pocket to uh, to continue to escalate in an effort. To contain Putin, because of course the objective here is try to get to Putin not to resort to some of these extremely dangerous and heinous weapons, and 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 once we get involved in no-fly zone, sort of all bets are off in terms of uh, what the consequences might be. It's also not clear to what extent that no-fly zone is really going to make a huge difference for the Ukrainians tactically, because, of course, they have the short-range defensive capabilities. What they're lacking currently and what they're subject to is, of course, the layered defense. They need medium and long-term defense against uh, Russian cruise missiles and against Russian strategic bombing. And I think one of the things that's held the Russians off from strategic bombing is precisely because they know that then could get NATO more into debate over no-fly zone. So the no-fly zone has been sort of a bargaining chip uh, that I think NATO has been has left open. Okay, so sometimes you look at this as a, just as a human being and you say, all right, so it's strategic and military uh, thinking, planning. But at the same time, you have people being murdered in large numbers, displaced in even larger numbers. And and the, the responsibility factor that we have for one another uh, comes into play, at least emotionally. You say, where's the line? Where exactly is the line? So if you cross this line, we're going for you. If you don't cross the line, we'll just let happen what's going to happen. And we'll keep a strategic uh, advantage or strategic options in our back pockets. It's it's difficult. I, I understand that the, the, the planners look at this and they'll say, yeah, this is what we have to do from the human perspective. Boy, it's a tough sell. Yeah, but the risk is, of course, you're dealing with a country that ultimately has the capability in both of tactical as well as strategic nuclear weapons and has made it clear that they are prepared to use those weapons, not just on this occasion, but they signaled to the West in 2014 um, on uh, the uh, on, on Crimea and on Donbass and Luhansk uh, that Russia would be prepared to use nuclear weapons if NATO got uh, too involved in the conflict. And so uh, there is, unfortunately, uh, nuclear weapons uh, allow Russia uh, a leverage that perhaps other countries won't have. And this is really the tragedy out of this conflict that we're likely going to see a proliferation 
uh, nuclear proliferation by other countries, because clearly the lesson is never give up your, your nuclear weapons. It's going to make it impossible for us to get North Korea to give up their nuclear weapons, for instance, after this. Right. And other countries will realize that if you want to keep your neighbors out of your backyard, well, nuclear weapons is uh, um, is is the leverage to that particular end. Um, so I think uh, political realism, unfortunately, uh, continues to trump uh, some of the ability that we would in principle have to mitigate some of the, not just the human suffering, but Russia's deliberate and intentional military doctrine of inflicting human carnage to achieve political and military objectives. So Ukraine has said, I have to take a break here, and thank you very much for doing this, stepping in. I really appreciate it. Uh, But Ukraine has said we should never have given up our nuclear weapons because they wouldn't be in our backyard if we were able to say to them, all right, so you cross this line and we're coming from you for you with everything we have. Uh, in, in 30 seconds or so, are we not in a situation where we're dealing with a madman who eventually is going to push us to the edge where we'll have to say to, say to ourselves, okay, we're going to do what we have to do, and we will do whatever we can strategically to make sure that he doesn't use nukes, but at some point we're going to have to say, here's the line, you crossed it, here are the consequences. Does that happen? I mean, where's the line, Christian? Well, the Russians have a strategic deterrent capability that is both land-based, air-based, and sea-based that would make it impossible for us to intercept um, an ability, a large-scale uh, launch by uh, by Russia, um, whether it be tactic against multiple targets in Europe or strategically against North America. And so that ultimately is what mutual assured destruction as uh, shelling developed in 1960, unfortunately, based on. Yeah. Yeah. The MAD uh, theory. Mutually assured destruction. Christian, uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't think too highly of his own intelligence agencies. He's put uh, quite a, well, I think quite a number of them in, in prison. The, the leader of the uh, intelligence agency that, or the intelligence group that gave him the information that he says he used is in jail now. But what do you think? Uh, a couple of things here. We've got Finland and Sweden. Uh, they've never been part of NATO. They're talking about joining NATO now. Putin's warning them not to. Again, pointing to the fact that he's got a long fuse at the end of a nuclear weapon or many nuclear weapons. Um, what do you think about that aspect, Sweden and Finland? And what are your expectations about what Putin's going to be doing? And then what are his next moves? So they've been close associate members of NATO for some time. The what I think is moving the popular opinion in particular in Finland, which is a 1300 kilometer border with Russia and which, of course, has fought uh, a couple of wars uh, with Russia. Incidentally, the 1940 uh, war with Russia might be also some model for how the current conflict is likely to end with Russia essentially taking uh, a chunk of land out of Ukraine. That uh, F- Finland, I think, is concerned about extended deterrence. What NATO members benefit from is that uh, if uh, Putin attacks with nuclear weapons, uh, what holds him off is extended nuclear deterrence by the United States. Um, and with tactical nuclear weapons already having been parked in the Kaliningrad exclave, uh, in particular Eskander missiles and presumably uh, the nuclear warheads that go on those, uh, the tactical nuclear warheads that go on those missiles, um, both uh, Sweden and Finland are immediately vulnerable to uh, tactical nuclear attack um, by Russia. Um, and so I think what they're looking for is that broader uh, U.S. Uh, security 
uh, umbrella. It looks like Finland might be closer to this conversation than uh, Sweden, but there's already been significant integration uh, in particular across the three Nordic countries, because Norway, of course, being a NATO member, um, especially in the air defense uh, domain since 2014. So this would be an evolutionary step, I would see it rather than as a revolutionary step. Okay, what is Putin going to do now about uh, Ukraine? He's suffered a lot of losses, as you pointed out. The Ukrainian military has handled itself exceedingly well. Hopefully, they'll be armed even better. Canada should, according to General Hillier, be doing far more to uh, arm the Ukrainians. But uh, what are his options and what do you expect him to do, given the reality that he's facing? Yeah, that's a good question because I think nobody quite knows, right? It depends on what his aims are. Are his aims geographic, that is to say, taking territory? Are his aims political, that is to say, bringing to fall the regime, the democratically elected legitimate uh, regime in Kiev and uh, bringing about regime change in Kiev? Are they domestic, so that is to say, primarily shoring up support uh, for him, because of course, of course, was was fledgling in light of his mishandling of the pandemic and the in the economy, uh, or what I think has always been his aim all along is to divide NATO and is to divide the European Union. So that's why I think the coming weeks will be telling, because what Putin will try to capitalize on is see if he can drive wedges uh, where where we no longer have that political deterrence, that is to say, uh, the consensus and resolution by uh, resolute standing by all NATO members. And uh, we'll see what the elections in France bring. Uh, but uh, uh, Putin will continue to try to divide NATO. And so I think what happens on the ground tactically uh, is always intended to see where Putin might be able to find uh, a wedge that he can drive in the alliance. Where does Germany fit into uh... This entire equation, they're, they're upping their military defense budget, they're providing assistance to Ukraine, but at the same time, they're purchasing great amounts of natural gas and oil from Russia, much to the displeasure of other EU members. So where does Europe's largest economy fit into this whole equation? Well, there's a famous quote by former U.S. ambassador to Germany saying that Germany is a strategy-free space. Uh, that is to say that perhaps the Germans did not pay, play ahead uh, quite far enough on this. And of course, considerable blame being heaped here on the former chancellor. But Germany has since the 1960s and Willy Brandt always tried to find a balance between, on the one hand, deterring Russia, on the other hand, trying to engage Russia. And given Germany's and Berlin's proximity to Moscow, I suppose politically it sort of makes some sense. You also have a population, as in Canada, that is extremely skeptical um, about uh, in, uh, military engagements and war as a result of Germany's history. We'll also have to see whether Germany is actually able to get the announcement of that massive increase in defense spending uh, through the chancellor's own party, let alone get his coalition members to agree to it. So there's considerable debate. And of course, the Germans are among the most reticent in providing heavy weapons to Ukraine. They're the ones who scuttled uh, the Polish offer of MiG-29s uh, to Ukraine. Uh, so Germany is certainly um, the, the country, along with France, one must say, that is trying to um, uh, provide a balance here. And in terms of making too many, too rash a move on Russian oil and gas imports, Germany and Italy in particular have been the blocking voices within the EU and within 
uh, within NATO, in part because there's concern about how quickly uh, Germany would be able to transition away. But I think Germany is also thinking that there might be opportunity here to continue to use some of this as leverage, that if you go okay. too hard on the sanctions all out, uh, then, uh, uh, then that reduces uh, the leverage over Putin. Right. Um, uh, this is the challenge of an alliance uh, and of a quasi-federation like the European Union. There are many different voices, and uh, we need to find sort of some common ground. At the same time, countries such as uh, Canada and the United States and the United Kingdom uh, can and should be pushing a lot harder to make sure that Putin knows there are voices uh, that are uh, quite prepared to counter his aggression uh, quite overtly. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.